This right here is episode 28 of Dope Nostalgia, and it's a pleasure to have you here once again. I'm Naomi, your host. We're welcoming Tal Bachman onto the show today to talk about his massive hit with She's So High and all the other amazing facets of his career and all the great hints he has and, and things he's learned over the years. He's imparted a lot of knowledge on me, and it was a great interview. So stick around for Tal Bachman. I'm going to first tell you a little bit about his career. Wikipedia, Wikipedia moment. Tal Bachman, or by his full name, Talmud Charles Robert Bachman, is a Canadian singer-songwriter and musician. He is best known for his late 1998 hit, She's So High, a pop rock tune from his self-titled 1999 album that led to a BMI award. Bachman got his musical break when executives at EMI Music Publishing heard a demo tape and aided him in securing a record deal with Columbia Records. Bob Rock signed on to co-produce his debut album. That first album, Tal Bachman, featured what would eventually become his hit single, She's So High, which reached number one on three different radio formats in Canada. The song became a multi-format top 10 hit in the United States and internationally, earning BMI's Song of the Year award. The album earned Bachman two Juno awards in Canada and much media exposure, including appearances on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, MTV, Much Music, Eve Network, and profiles, interviews, and reviews on Rolling Stone, Q Magazine, USA Today, and so many more. In support of the record, Bachman toured as an opening act for Brian Adams and the Bare Naked Ladies, and also toured on his own. Second album, Staring Down the Sun, was released in Canada on Sextant Records in August 2004, and was released in the United States by Artemis Records in 2006. The single Aeroplane reached number 20 on the Canadian charts and was used in the 2005 film American Pie Presents Bandcamp. It was played as an instrumental and during the credits. Bachman now lives in Victoria, British Columbia. He also does the research on his father Randy Bachman's show Vinyl Tap, so check that out. It's a pleasure to introduce Tal Bachman on the show. I remember actually you were doing a show uh, about 15 years ago in Spruce Grove. Uh, and it was like at the Horizon stage. And I was the manager at the Pizza Hut in town. And you came by in order to take out pizza. Really? <laughs> yeah. So we have, I have met you before. I just, it was memorable to me too, because you, you had left a tip on a carryout and that doesn't happen very often. So. Oh, really? That was nice of you. <laughs> yes. It's funny how uh, people remember tips. Yeah, well, especially in the industry, but yeah, I was. But you know, it's I funny. I so I I've been in Victoria since 2005 here in British Columbia, and I always took great care to leave tips. I mean, I don't mean crazy tips like hundred dollar bills on a twenty five dollar thing. You know, like right. I was a billionaire, but you know, in excess of well, always in excess of fifteen, and usually in excess of twenty. I mean, barring some terrible service or something, but that doesn't happen right. very often because the restaurant business is so competitive, competitive in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I thought I'd build, and I always would go hang out at Cactus Club. Do you have that in Edmonton? Yes. Okay. So that was kind of the go-to place. It was consistent and, you know, I was single at the time. There's lots of pretty girls and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, so I'm just putting new ice in my drink. Um, as I'm talking. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I would go hang out there. Um, I say hang out. I mean, I would, that's where I would, that was my go-to place for dinners, right? So if I had a, a meeting or something, I would go there. So I was, 
we should start over again. The, <laughs> point is, the point is, I went there all the time, and I thought I had established quite a bit of cred because of my tipping. And in fact, you know, my my assumption was reinforced by the fact that I I could pull lots of favors there. You know, like I was friendly with the manager, and you know, they would they would occasionally do things for me that they maybe wouldn't do for somebody else just because I was in there so often. Right. And then one day. My son got a job there. He was 18 or something. And he, come, he calls me up and he says, well, I had my first day at work. And this, when this guy found out that you were my son, uh, you were my dad, he said, oh, your dad's a total jerk because he always stiffs us on the tips. What? And I'm like, what? He must have me confused. I'm, no, no, no. He knew exactly who you were. He says that you always stiff them on the tips. And that's why I always hated it when you showed up and I'm like, I mean, I still have no explanation to this moment how that could have ever happened. Um, and it's always sort of bothered me because I, I mean, I blew so much money in there, not just on my bills, but on tips. Yeah. That humans would not have blown. Yeah. Just goes to show you like no good deed goes unpunished. So I don't know how that happens. But. How frustrating. And especially if it's a place you like to frequent and then you yeah, probably feel super. That, yeah. And then it turns out the entire staff is talking about what a jerk I am and it's totally undeserved. Wow. Wow. Thank you, God. I've been in this business for a while and I haven't had anything like that happen. Usually everybody talks about who the good tippers are though. <laughs> not, are, not the opposite. Then who are they? Like celebs and stuff? Sometimes I served Kiefer Sutherland last year. And how was that? He was, well, he tipped like 25% and mm. he, he was on his music tour at the time. So he was playing downtown Edmonton and um, I was working at a place called the blue plate diner, which is a local locally owned restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he just loved the food because it tasted like home cooking and he doesn't get that on the road very much. Right. But he, he loved our lamps that we had on the tables. They were all yeah. vintage and unique. So he just, asked me if he could buy one <laughs> i said now, you know what i said you could just have it and he's like no i'll give you a hundred bucks for the lamp he and said that go. yeah he just gave us money for it and so he bought it mm -hmm. um so you sound like a woman who takes what do you call it like the food and drinks industry or mm -hmm. pretty seriously i've been doing it that's been my my um <clears throat> my nine to five for the last 22 years, 23 years. Yeah. 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 So, well, I, I know my I, stuff. Well, I appreciate that because, uh, that's, you know, I, I have, I mean, it sounds like I'm just saying this, but I'm not, I, I've spent a lot of time, awesome time in local pubs and restaurants and <clears throat> it always, you know, it's really bothered me this shutdown thing, how drastically it's affected that industry and all the folks there. Um, and, and, and just to complete the thought, I mean, Victoria has a very, well, at least until you know, two months ago, a very robust pub culture mm -hmm. with live music. I mean, I went to London a couple of years ago, and I couldn't even find a local pub that had live music. I was in London. Now, maybe it was just that part of town. But when I got into a cab and said, hey, can you take me to a few pubs that, you know, like just anything, local original music, the guy was like, oh, you know what, mate, we're all out of business. Aren't they? There's all there's all purchased by Polish people and Russians and Arabs and closed them all down. So there wasn't even a pub in this area. I was in the I was kind of based in Covent Garden, so that's pretty central. You would think there would be at least three, four, five 
pubs. In fact, even the pubs on Denmark Street, which if you're a musician with any knowledge of you know, British musical history, Denmark Street was the place where a lot of that stuff happened. It was where all the publishing companies were. And when you go there, and I was expecting, so, I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, Naomi. I just no, that's good. Up. Well, I, like I, I, I mean, you, you know, you're thinking it's going to be like Madison Avenue, you know, like, or, you know, you know, Hollywood Boulevard. You know, you, you're thinking it's going to be this giant thing. It's this little, tiny, narrow street that is, I mean, I, it might be officially listed at 100 meters, but it, it seems like it's shorter than that. I mean, there's just almost nothing there except tall, well, like maybe, if I remember correctly, maybe three-story buildings. Yeah. But in this little tiny length of street uh, were all of the musical publishing companies in Great Britain. That's where the headquarters were, little offices for decades. And there were even a couple of recording studios, small places by our standards, and a number of pubs and musical shops. So you could go in and get your guitar. You could go like next door. I mean, we're talking about little tiny kind of, I mean, this is like the Disneyland miniature village kind of thing. You know, by our standards, a very compressed sort of miniature, you know, you have to say like microscopic business center, little pub, you know, little staircase you go down and there's like an underground thing and there's like a folk trio. And the next thing is like Irish guys playing. But when I was there a couple of years ago, the last of the live venues were on that little street, Denmark Street, were closing down hmm. or had closed down. There were a few music shops still in business. The music publishing shops had moved out. Um, and I'm rambling now. This is like a, you're in a rest home or something. Or something. But, <laughs> no, this is uh, chatting. This is good. But um, no, but anyway, I, I, always, I have a, a real appreciation for, you know, awesome food and drinks and atmosphere and go and you go watch the games there and, mm. but uh anyway hopefully it'll rebound it's gonna take some time and uh here in alberta they're trying to reopen restaurants at a 50 percent capacity in by may 14th which i think is too soon but you know it's day by day we'll see what happens mm. we'll see what happens <laughs> I guess. Um, I would rather get coronavirus than you know deal with this anymore myself personally. But. <laughs> so it just comes to an end and everything goes back to normal eventually. Yeah, I mean the yeah, I mean the numbers do not warrant this extreme of a reaction. Hmm. Put it like that. I mean that's not to say that you know the virus is not real or that it's not dangerous. Of course, of course, it can kill. Like mm -hmm. like viruses every year kill, but. When you actually look at the numbers compared to the costs of our reaction, mm -hmm. it just does not add up, even remotely. But yeah. It's maybe that's a, sorry, go ahead. You're right. The fallout of this is, is quite scary. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I was going to uh, talk a little bit about the first and second albums, of course, and the beginning of your career. Right. Um, and the fact, okay, you you grew up in Winnipeg, or you were born in Winnipeg? Born in Winnipeg. Uh, then we moved out when I was a toddler to the West Coast, to Vancouver. Mm. And when I was seven, we moved down to Washington State. So I was there until I was 15, and we moved back to British Columbia, to a suburb of Vancouver called White Rock. Oh, I love White Rock. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. 
Um, so yeah, you spent most of your time out on the West Coast then. Um, with, with your family, of course, the, the huge musical influence that you have in your life from your father, what were some of the greatest lessons you learned from him going into a music career? Was it like a blessing or did it make things difficult to establish your own identity as a musician? Um, well, uh, I think I would have to say that the positive far outweighed the challenges. He, my dad is all music all the time, pretty much. I mean, that's not quite true. He does, you know, he has his daily rituals. He likes to go swimming and, you know, you know he does regular massage things. And But um, I don't mean seating massage parlors. I mean therapeutic <laughs> massages for a sore back. Um, anyway, um, where was I going? But most of the time, his, I mean, it's all music all the time. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, you, you get exposed to and therefore come to understand all sorts of music, all, all sorts of types of music to the, to the point where, you know, genres don't really exist because you, you know all the kind of fundamental, all the patterns are always the same, right? It doesn't matter if you know, a great jazz tune or a reggae tune or a metal tune or anything. So, so that was a huge advantage for me just um, in terms of musical literacy, especially, you know, in a decade prior to YouTube and Spotify, you know? So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had a, you know, honestly, I mean, the, repo the repository of recorded music in the home was, you know, put us in, you know, one one hundredth of one percent of any home in the world. Whereas now, of course, you can just access anything with your phone. But so we had thousands of records in the house that I could listen to at any time. So anybody that I ever got interested in, any musician or anything, there was you know, at least two, three, four albums. Right. Um, so that was a huge advantage. Um, listening to my dad write songs is, was pretty good, even though I wasn't sort of actively studying. It was always going on in the background. So I'd be watching a show. He'd be working on, an, on a song. You know, ten feet away in his in his chair. Particularly after my parents split up, and I went to live with him. So for for a while, I was the only kid with my dad. And there was a drum kit, and there was a piano there, and there were guitars lying around. Uh, and he was constantly kind of analyzing songs on the radio. So that's a long-winded way of saying that. Yeah, you you can't help but pick up all kinds of stuff being around somebody like that. Absolutely. Um, um, were there other things like things that you were passionate about at the time? As oh yeah, besides oh, tons, music, tons of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unlike my dad, I was, I, I, I was, and always have been since interested in a lot more things. Uh, I was really into baseball. I was really into football. Uh, watched all the games. Uh, you know, played sports. Um, uh, I, you know, I. I don't think my dad was, I don't think my dad ever did this in school, but I joined the bands and the choirs at school. And so I was interested in that. I, I read a lot. I was interested in literature and uh, kind of the world of ideas and politics. And mm. So I, I was, that wasn't something that I, you know, worked on. I did, that just, uh, it just has always been part of who I am. Um, mm. Back to your earlier question about challenges. Um, you know, establishing my own identity, it, it must have driven my dad crazy. I've never really talked to him about it. But when I first picked up guitar when I was 15 to try to really get good at it, I did not want him to show me anything. 
<laughs> you know, and, and and he just lives, sleeps, eats, breathes guitar. It must have just driven him crazy. And he wanted me to show. He wanted to show me all of his tricks, and he loves Chet Atkins, the famous, you know, now past, but the famous finger picking guitarist. He wanted me to show, wanted to show me all of the tricks, and I just didn't want him to show me anything because I thought if I ever end up being a musician, I, I just want to forge my own path here. So I. Mm. Uh, you know, it's okay later once I've kind of grown into what I hope will naturally have been my my musical character. I can go back and kind of learn stuff and pick stuff up once I've established myself. But um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. I mean, the other the other thing, um, yeah. So maybe it was a little bit of a challenge just kind of forging my own uh, musical identity, but. Um, Normal people can't believe that it also would be a challenge to have a famous dad in the same business once you're trying to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they think that, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're an aspiring comedian, but your dad was Jerry Seinfeld or Steve Martin, that you would automatically be taken very seriously and given all sorts of breaks. And it really is, if anything, the opposite. I mean, if I heard yeah. that Steve, yeah, if I heard that Steve Martin, you know, I mean, Steve Martin hasn't been funny or done stand up for like I was trying to think of somebody. I mean, like Bill Burr or something. If I heard that Bill Burr had a, an 18-year-old kid, you know, Bill Burr, the comedian. Right? Yes. Um, if I had, if I heard that he had a kid and he was coming around, I, I don't. I think my first thought would be, well, he's probably nowhere near as good as his dad. Mm-hmm. So why would I go? Because and, his dad got into it because he was passionate and loved it. Why? This, there's going to be a harder pressure on this child to be good. It doesn't yeah, necessarily I, mean that that's what they even want to do. Yeah, and I mean, and anything seems, you know, large or small, good or bad, only in comparison to other points of reference, right? So if you if you have somebody who's had a huge amount of success standing right next to you, how are you going to, and you're just starting, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the, the, the dad or the uncle or the granddad has 20, 30, 40 years on you. I mean, people <laughs> are going to be predisposed to thinking you're not quite as good, so why would I take this kid seriously? Mm-hmm. So that was something I had to overcome. Um, How did the first album come about? Did you approach record labels on your own? Did you do all the writing? How did it come about? I was at university down in Utah. My dad was still up in British Columbia. He was horrified that I was attending university because in his mind, that's a total waste of time. Wow. Yeah, and he kept saying uh, that I should come back and be a musician, and I was talented, and what was I doing wasting my life learning things? So, <laughs> um, um, and where was it going, and what was the plan? And I said, well, I'm really having a good time. I'm uh, taking all these history classes and political science classes. And he just, you know, he's kind of a one-track mind type of guy. Well, as it happened, uh, I, I mean, I got married very young, and couple of kids came along as it happens um, and I wound up pretty financially desperate and working terrible jobs trying to put myself through school mm. and I also kind of got a little burnt out on the political stuff because to me it felt like I'd gotten to some dead ends with things I mean, it's maybe too abstract but um, I don't know I mean a bunch of things, what I'm trying to say is a bunch of things happened all at once that, that ended up kind of 
forcing me to reassess what I was doing, trying to go to school, support a little growing family. And, uh, and then my dad's drummer broke his ankle in a motorcycle accident. And my dad called me and said, I need a drummer. You play drums. Drums are my first instrument. Mm. Would, you, would you come up? I'll help you get a place. You can play in my band. You can use my little home studio. That was a huge advantage. Um, you can use my home studio to do some of your own stuff. If you want to write your own stuff, I said, okay, you know, I, I'm ready to do that. I think I've gotten what I went to university to get. I think I have a pretty good understanding of all this stuff I was curious about. And now I need to get serious about, you know, establishing a career and supporting these, these people that are now depending on me. Not um, to interrupt, but what were yeah. you studying at the time? Uh, political science. Yeah, so I went up to White Rock, where my dad was still in British Columbia. I started writing my own songs. Um, they were very derivative. Um, at first, you know, I was kind of rewriting Beatles songs and Beach Boys songs. And, uh, I loved Irish folk music, so I was, you know, I would you know, do songs that sounded like the Pogues or some Irish band or something. So, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. And, you know, I, most of the time you start by imitating and, so I would demo these early attempts at songs. They, they were maybe, they were maybe good, but I mean, utterly identityless. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing unique about them. It, it, it just sounded like some guy, it sounded like what it was, some guy shamelessly ripping off pre-existing songs that you've already heard before. Um, and so I didn't want to send it, I was aware of that. And I didn't want to send any of those songs around. And, and as it happened, there was a little bit of a difference of opinion between me and my dad about what to do with these demos. He wanted to send them to everybody. I didn't want to send them to anybody uh, at all because I just felt like they weren't ready. And like, how do you, I mean, if you're a normal person, sorry, I'm rambling again here. But, uh, but anyway, you get it like a, if you get like a, you know, eight songs from some guy and one's like a reggae song. One sounds like, you know, the Dubliners, like an Irish folk band. There's like two rock songs and then three Beatles ripoffs. I mean, it, it, it sounds like an insane asylum, right? You know, like How do you market band. this? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, it's like when you meet somebody, you don't, you know, like you meet somebody and there might be a connection. You don't lead by, unless you're mental or something, you don't lead by starting from the moment of your birth and telling them everything that's ever happened in your life. You know, you have to like think <laughs> something that this, these people can kind of wrap their heads around to get a sense of who you are and orient themselves vis-a-vis -vis you. And so where, where I'm going is, um, so my dad and I were trying to get, move forward. I was trying to write songs. He was sending them out. So, but needless to say, they all got rejected. So I had all of these people calling me saying, like one guy, one guy, a very famous guy at the time, who maybe, I don't know if he'd want to be named, but um, worked at a big publishing company, and he had been instrumental in breaking Alanis Morissette, and Alanis had exploded, mm. exploded. And so we get a, you know, my dad sent a, one of these like nine song, multiple personality disorder tapes to this guy. And he calls back my dad and he says, tell your son to call me once he decides which band he'd like to join. <laughs> it, you know, is it Zeppelin? Oh. Is it The Who? Is it The Beatles, The Beach Boys, Queen, ELO, Bob Marley and the Wailers? What is it? <laughs> I have no idea what this is. So I got a, I was 
you know, so I was passed on by everybody. Mm. And eventually, so I'll try to bring, bring this, answer your question. Um, eventually, um, I, I, so after like two years of doing this, I just, I, I was like, you know, I, I just felt like, I, I don't know, like, it wasn't so much conscious. It's just that, that I just started to write songs that sounded like the best little bits of all of my favorite artists, but that didn't sound like 99% DNA copies of a pre-existing song. Mm-hmm. The first one that I wrote that sounded kind of like that was this one. Um, it was like a... So I, I came up with this little song one day, and, and the hook was like, oops, it's, it's quite high, I don't want to blow your ears out, change the key, but it's like a... No, you're good. Yeah. Um, and if you sleep, you sleep with God, and if I cry, it's for my heart, why should I hope to make it through? And if you sleep, I sleep too. So I had this little idea for a song, pretty simple thing, three chords. But I thought, well, you know, it sounds a bit radio heady and a bit beatly, but it doesn't really sound exactly like them. And I think I have something here. So I did that song. Hmm. And I, my concept for the song was like to just write a, a sort of a surreal lyrics that that kind of conveyed the experience of somebody who's witnessing somebody die they can they can't they can't uh, stop it so and my grandfather had passed away like a year or two earlier so so i, I think that's kind of what it was it's like you know you're watching this guy he's always been physically robust healthy sharp as a tack and now he's starting to wither you know pancreatic cancer in my granddad's case but but everybody i think can kind of relate to that if they've had a grandparent kind of all of a sudden they have six months to live and, yeah. it, and you can't stop it you know so that was the concept for the song you wouldn't think maybe that would be a big deal getter song because it's kind of a morose subject but maybe the hook was big enough that i when i demoed it and i sent it out i for the first time i just thought i've done it i'm gonna get somewhere with this and sure enough i started to get phone calls from a couple of people one of them was a would-be manager and um he said uh i really like this stuff and through him my stuff got to emi music publishing in new york and within it was the strangest thing i mean within honestly like 48 or 72 hours i went from zero no hope having been rejected by every record company in canada and in the united states and I mean also, in addition to that, managers, booking agents, everybody says no. One guy called me and said, he's passed away now um, since, uh, famous, uh, powerful independent radio promoter in England, uh, sorry, Canada, called me one day and said, um, my dad, uh, your dad played me your stuff, and I just need to tell you, and I'm not exaggerating, this is honestly, like word for word what he said. I have to just be honest with you. I don't like any of your stuff. It's irritating. It drives me nuts. <laughs> I mean, it just, I had, so I had been rejected by everybody. I had another child on the way. I was freaking out. And, and I have no reason to hope that I'm 
ever going to get anywhere. And I, I started to think this is like uh, 96. Mm. And I started to think I'm going to have to go back to the slaughterhouse where I was, you know, all these terrible jobs in Utah where I was like studying. Because right? mm. I wasn't making a lot of money with my dad. He was kind of at a low point in his career. And within a couple of days, it was the big phone call. It was like a movie or something. Uh, EMI loves your stuff. They wanted to, I'd never even met the manager, I don't think, if I remember correctly. That manager in Los Angeles that heard my stuff wanted to manage me. Um, I don't even think I'd met him. And he called me and he said, um, EMI wants us to go with me as, you know, when, so is it okay if we go and I'm your manager? I said, well, yeah, of course. I, mean, I, I, wouldn't, I mean, I would have hired Lucifer to be my manager, but at the time I was so desperate, right? I was like, okay, sure. You be my manager. Let's go to New York. So EMI flew us to New York. We listened to five or six of my songs. I hit it off with the guys. I'm still friendly with them today, all these years later. Hmm. Um, they said, we want to sign you. Um, we want to get you a record deal. A publishing deal is not a record deal, right? But, yep. And so I said, well, I, I got to be honest with you. I've already approached all of these record companies, and they all said no. And you might not know that. I thought I was doing, I thought I was taking a big risk by saying that because I yeah. thought that might jaundice them against even signing me as a publishing company. But I, you know, whatever. I, I just, I thought that was the right thing to do. And, and to my delight and relief, Rick Krim, any of my music publishers said, don't, don't worry about it. Once we take it to them, they'll sign. As soon mm -hmm. as we call up and say, we're signing you, we will forget these A&R men, forget the middlemen. A&R men are artists and repertoire men. They're like the talent scouts. I mean, yeah. we'll put that in like ironic quotation marks is most of these guys, I could not hear a hit if it, you know, steamrolled them 50 times in a row. I, I, mean, I think I, they're looking for something to sell, like an image to sell more so than an actual music. Well, even that would be something, but most of these people, you'd be shocked at how kind of, at least at the time, maybe it's different now. I guess the, the industry is much different, but you would Perfect. think, you would think that the artists and repertoire men, the talent scouts, would be these kind of greedy sharks. They'd just be only focused on money. But it actually was way worse than that. Because if they were only focused on money, you could understand where they were coming from. You could speak their language. You could understand their frame of mind. If they said to you, we love your stuff, but we just don't think there's a market for it. I love it. And uh, 200 of my friends might love it, but beyond a very, you're, you're always going to be niche. So therefore, I can't invest in you. You would understand that. You, could, you would be disappointed. But what was even more frustrating for me, and, and, and remember that this is prior to like Napster and downloading. So these, these record companies are overflowing with cash. Mm. I mean, it is, they were making $10 a unit sold for every $1 that the artists were getting. So you sell like, a, you know, 15 million Mariah Carey records. Mm -hmm. You just made $150 million, and that's one artist. Mm -hmm. What if you have like Michael Bolton and Mariah Carey and a huge back catalog of Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen? That's what Columbia Records, where I ended up, um, that's what they had. I mean, they just had, okay, so anyway, I'm rambling. Oh. <laughs> so I'm right, right, again, uh, where I'm going is, is like most of these A&R guys, the talent scouts, weren't driven particularly by profit motive it was it was a bizarre incomprehensible game of out cooling their peers at other record companies so hmm. there's nothing quantifiable or measurable you know 
right? You know, like they're signing bands that will never, ever have a hit and don't even want to have a hit or let alone five or 10 hits. They don't even want them. This is like the 90s, right? So there's, you know, these A&R guys are like, well, I found this great kid. He was in rehab. Um, He's a heroin addict. Uh, My cousin knew him from high school. And I heard, you know, his, you know, thing. I think he could be like the next Kurt Cobain. I mean, they're looking for the next screw up. Um, And then you listen to the tape. And there's literally nothing even remotely close to a hook, to a musical oh. hook. So yeah. that's even more frustrating because you, you never, there's no rhyme or reason to how these things were operating. At least that's what it seemed like most of the time. But luckily for me, um, these guys liked my songs at EMI and then their number one pick was Columbia Records. That was the biggest at the time, the biggest, most powerful record company. And when they played it for the head honcho of Columbia Records, a man by the name of Donnie Einer, he loved it. And within literally, okay, I, I flew to New York on a Sunday. We had, let me think. I think, no, I think what it was, was I think we flew on a Saturday. I had a showcase on a Sunday. Then I had meetings on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And uh, by Friday, I had a record deal. Wow. Just like that. It's unreal. Yeah. Well, you're doing that was a, a lucky show- week. When you're doing a showcase and you have no time to put it together, are you just yeah. playing you and your guitar? Or do you have a band there with you? Oh, I found three guys to come with me. Yeah. We it, The showcase was not good. I mean, I mean if I... If I, could, I, I mean, if there were video of it, I would not want to watch it right now. <laughs> my, my demos were pretty, I mean, some of my demos were, were rough. They had rough performances, but they, they were fleshed out. The songs were fleshed out. You know, there's like two, three guitar parts, maybe a piano or something, and, or a Fender Rhodes or something. And I just didn't have time to recreate the song. So, so we did very bare bones versions. Mm. of these few songs that I had. I performed them with fellows that I hardly knew. And I don't even know if they liked the songs. I just, uh, I met, I, you know, once we found out that EMI wanted to do something and they were going to pitch to these record companies, we had to put a band together. So we, we just scoured Los Angeles, grabbed three guys. Mm. We rehearsed for two days or something. Um, went there, did a showcase. And thank you, God, uh, um, I mean, for all the other complaints I might make about this fellow out there, um, thank you, God. Um, somehow or other, he, um, he somehow tricked the Columbia Records people into thinking that um, I was worth signing, despite my rough uh, performance that night at some club that I can't even remember. Just like that. So I got a deal. Yeah, I got a deal. I got together with Bob Rock, um, did the record, and. Whispered 
Analog Brewing, winner of three awards at the 2020 Alberta Beer Awards, is a proud sponsor of the Dope Nostalgia podcast. Analog Brewing is now offering delivery within the city of Edmonton with no delivery fee on orders over 40 bucks. Go to analogbrewing.ca slash shop. That's www.analogbrewing.ca forward slash shop and place your order today. When placing an order, you could also pay it forward and take part in their Nurse a Pint program and prepay for a pint for a nurse. Mention this podcast in the order comments so they know we sent you. Analog Brewing, taking beer to the next level. No blows at the table, thank you. Wouldn't it be great to serve your family dinners like these? They don't take ages to make or days, or even hours. In fact, you can easily make any one of these great tasting meals in just 30 minutes or less. So all you have to decide now is how to spend all that time you just saved. We're sure you'll think of something. Beef, it's what's for dinner. That's a question I have for you, is the experience of working with Bob Rock. You got to work with one of the, uh, one of the legends right out of the gate. Uh, Bob was very talented. He was um, a really great mixture of, I don't want to say deference, but he, he, I was definitely, I never felt like I was pushed in any direction. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. That was kind of one of my nightmares. I didn't want to be in a studio with some guy you know, constantly trying to steer me in some particular direction. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I don't think I would do this now, but at the time, I wanted to make an album that, that was quite varied. Nowhere near as varied as my original demos, yeah. but, an, but an album that had a, a, a huge breadth of emotion and, and kind of musical uh, style, it, it, along the lines of Queen's Sheer Heart Attack. So I loved you know, A Night at the Opera Queen and Sheer Heart Attack Queen. Mm. And those, those albums had some very serious rock songs. They had very clever, witty, catchy pop songs like Killer Queen. Um, you know, there was progressive rock. There was a couple of comedy songs. There were, um, you know, kind of sentimental parlor style love songs. And these guys were able to, to pull all of those off. And I thought, man, you know, it's, I listened to all these other bands of the, of the era, you know, late 90s. And, you know, they're just very one-dimensional. And mm-hmm. all my favorite records like even the old Beatles records you know you get a serious love song uh funny little comedy sing-along song uh an acid kind of you know tomorrow never knows I mean like revolver right you have tomorrow yeah. never knows you have uh you know yellow submarine I mean so you got this huge so I wanted to do something like that and Bob totally got that and helped me make it happen and we did it together and it was great 
Do you think in the 90s we were starting to go towards a more single orientated time as it was? So it wasn't about the art of making the album anymore and listening to the album as a whole experience? And that that was part of... I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I think but it was I mean, starting to happen by the late 90s. I guess so. But I I didn't even... I never really thought too much about that. I, hmm. I just... I mean, I had my own little theories of what would work, one of which was let, let us deliberately avoid any of the, the kind of stylistically current uh, production values. Let's not do any of this stuff. Let's, let, let's make this record not sound like everything else that is getting played on the radio. Good. Um, and if we do that, um, we won't have kind of pegged the, the actual structure of the song to any particular era. And if we can achieve that and actually have a hit with it, we have a chance of this, this song. And I thought there was going to be maybe three big hits off of that album. Um, and if we, I said, I thought if we achieve that, then these three hits could get played forever. So it's not going to, you know, when you're like in a car and you turn on the radio and there's like an 80 song starts and it's, you know, like chorus and giant echoes. And it's it just so, horrible to listen to now i don't know about you but it's just I like I, it's so yeah, dated yeah it's so off-putting and dated you know why <laughs> date yourself if we can thread the needles you know why would we date the song right so, mm. so that seemed to work again bob was totally crucial for that and so when the album was released at that point how did what was the initial single was it she's so high it was She's So High, and the, the strategy from the record company was that She's So High would be what they called the setup track. And that what that meant was that it was a kind of a, they thought it was a catchy ditty that, you know, people would react to, and it was springtime, so let's put it out in the springtime. and So it will be a hit, but it's not going to have a lot of staying power. It will prep the waters. It will introduce you to, these, to the audience. And, and It'll make a big flash and then it'll kind of vanish because that's the kind of song it is. And then we'll come, or so they said, then we'll come with the bigger, more serious songs. And, you know, we'll have another couple of hits off of this album. Mm -hmm. And once you get into your second and third singles, when you really break as an artist, you only have the one song. It's only just the song that broke. Nobody knows who you are. They just know the song, right? So, so that was the strategy. But as it happened, She's So High came out and, and they, they just got slammed at radio for like a solid year on all different sorts of formats. So, mm. so it's, that's what you call a nice problem to have. It you know, is. Um, you have a song that's getting just blasted from South Africa to Australia to Hong Kong to everywhere, England and Canada, I mean, everywhere on multi-formats you're making lots of money but you can't get into those second and third songs that really establish you as an artist by the end of she's so high getting played a radio like after i don't know eight months or something the very same radio promotion guys at the record company that had begged the radio stations to give it a chance were begging them to take it off the radio oh. so that we could come with the second single but why would they stop playing it if people wanted to keep hearing it? Yeah. So, right. I wonder how commonly that happens. I would assume that probably happened to Alanis <laughs> with Jagged Little Pill, maybe. 
Well, I, I mean, but she had what, like five giant songs off of that album. Huge, huge. It right? just never stopped with the singles. It was, yeah, it was a yeah. juggernaut for sure. But so, and what happens with your plan is your plan, it's amazing how things just don't go according to plan. You can't predict mm-hmm. how it's going to work out. So what happens with the second single? You get it on the air? I don't know what happened with the second single. I can't get a straight answer. I, I, could, I couldn't get a straight answer out of my, my managers. Um, I really don't know. I, I mean, I, there's no way for me to even find out. I just don't know if something happened between me or my camp and the record company that, that ticked them off or if they earnestly tried to, to break that song and it just didn't take. Mm. I, re- I just don't know. So continuing on with the success of the one song too, you, you ended up winning a Juno for it, right? At least, at least one Juno. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, then there's this show that came along as well called Pop Idol. I think it's based out of Europe, correct? Um, a singer by the name of Kurt Nilsson yeah. covered it. How many years later was that? Like a little bit. Four, three or four. <laughs> Something like that. So then <clears throat> takes off again. Yep. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> that was another huge. St- <laughs> that was nice. Uh, well, because you get all the royalties, right? If you wrote yeah. the song, you say. And uh, European royalties, I think, are like, at least at the time, they were like twice what the North American radio royalties were. So every time a radio station plays it, did it you find. Audience will probably know this, but. There, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It was just cutting Uh, out a little bit. Um, Did you find out about that happening before he performs it or after when it's already being played everywhere? I I think I got an email from somebody that said, hey, there's a kid on Norwegian Idol that covered your song. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I kept getting email updates from people. So this is pre-YouTube, right? This is early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So there was no way for me to actually look at any of the footage or anything. So I just kept getting reports. And then I, then they kept kind of going on and on like, Oh, well that kid that did your song, he made it into the next round and it looks like he might win. And I think he was originally from Norway and then he went to, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't even care. I didn't even care. I just was happy that my song was getting played again. Um, Cause that's really what you want as an artist. You know, it's really a thrill if you can create something that, that, becomes meaningful to people even if it's yeah. a, a, if it's a light kind of pop song like she saw it made an impact and people wanted to keep hearing it and that i think was yeah that was a good thing um, i have a question from one of our listeners named andrew um, he says i've heard you are one of the researchers for vinyl tap is that mainly online and do you have any tips for aspiring researchers it's always hard to know where to start I am the only researcher on my dad's CBC radio show. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, mostly online, but sometimes I'll, so what I do for him is I, I'll, I do kind of bullet point summaries of the song's history and the relevant, you know, who produced it, who wrote it, when did it come out, what was its highest chart listing. And often he has, personal stories that connect to some of the songs. So I don't have to go too crazy 
inserting anecdotes into the bullet point list, but sometimes I do. Is there something cool happened? Like, you know, this song was written in, a, you know, in a prison cell, you know, the, the guy got arrested or something crazy happened or he got shot in the leg and he was in the middle of a surgery and he woke up and he had this idea for a song. And I mean, there's all kinds of weird little things. I don't know how many of them are true, but some of them could be true. Maybe all of them are true. I mean, after all, strange things do happen, certainly in the music business. And with musicians who typically aren't like the most, you know, well-ordered individuals. Um, so I put that on. Um, but as for tips for researchers, um, put it like this. I don't think that, well, I mean, all of my research choices, the, what I choose to include and the formatting and the sequence is all based on my dad's unique psyche. Um, like his his needs as a radio host and his tendencies. Uh, so so I guess the first thing I would say is you want to constrain yourself according to. I mean, when you're doing a job like that, it's like being a sideman in a band. If you if you think that this is about you, you're wrong. You, you need if you're a sideman, if you're backing somebody up, you you are serving that person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same if you're a producer, right? It, it doesn't matter if it's an eight-year-old kid you're producing or whatever. You are in a, uh, a kind of uh, a, a subsidiary role where you need to try to make this person's vision come true. Um, so, I mean, I, but I mean, I guess that's advice for any job. You know, it's amazing you, you, how you're, many you're, people don't get yeah, that. Yeah, don't get that. I mean, you're on a team. If you're the captain of the team, or forget captain of the team because you're all still putting together. But I mean, if you're the front man, like I was, you know, like, and you're in my band, like you, you play what I need you to play. Mm -hmm. okay? If you don't want to play what I need you to play, like you, you don't belong in the band. I mean, I, and like you say, I, I mean, this seems like a pretty basic thing. And like 90% of the people out there can't get it through their heads. Like if you're an engineer, mm -hmm right? In a studio. I mean, this is one of my, you know, I, I hate recording engineers for this reason because they can't, <laughs> I mean, I don't, that's not, I'm being silly. I mean, some of them are awesome. I love them. But most of these guys can't get it through their head that you are in a, a, a kind of almost a servant type position when you're in a studio do, re, doing recording engineer. No one cares. And this is just an example, but you know, if you're a recording engineer or a sideman, which I've been, right? You come in and say, okay, well, uh, you know, like I've done this for lots of people, you know, play on their records. Um, I'm, you know, more successful than they've ever been. But in that moment, I'm working on their vision. Mm -hmm. So I walk in, I say, okay, well, what were you thinking? Well, I kind of want to, uh, you know, a Keith Richards kind of thing. Okay, well, I, I, here's a couple things off the top of my head. Do you hear anything that you like? I mean, it's like that. So, but like you say, I mean, this is just so irritating because you see this so often in every walk of life. These guys can't get over themselves. Nope. It's I think the fun. most successful ones, the successful musicians are the ones who do know their role. And they just do their- Yeah, the roles change. The yeah, the roles change. change and as you will grow at what you're doing and you will become that boss one day if that's what you yeah. desire, but do what you're supposed to do to get there. Like, yeah, I don't want to hear a bunch of like, I, like, I, I, like if I'm fronting a show, I'm doing an album. I don't want a, an engineer coming in saying, which I've had so many times, right? You can't believe it. I'm paying a guy's salary 
Sorry, I'm just going off here. I sound like a like rancorous <laughs> man. But, you know, I'm paying a guy an hourly wage to push buttons, plug in amps and get them sorted and put echo on it or whatever I'm, I'm doing. I'm trying to do demo, you know, recordings or something. Um, I don't want to hear, like, pushback from a guy like that. It's not his job. I don't want to hear a guy say, like, no, I don't really think we should go with the Marshall. I think we should just go directly into the board. And I also think you should play a Strat, not your Les Paul. And I think, and it's like. That's a lot to say. <laughs> I, I know. I, you would think so. But these guys can't get it through their head. It's like guys in the band, right? It's like like the drummer, the bass player, that, you know, you know, it's like they didn't write the song. They're not on the uh, recording contract. You know, they didn't get signed. They didn't write any of the songs. It's not their record deal. It's not their name. They're Some so people have this ego where they just need to leave their little stamp on something so that they can go and brag to all their friends that they did that. Yeah. Well, if your little stamp is contributing to the song yeah. and, and, you're, and, and you're captain, the, the guy who's, who you're kind of supporting in that role um, welcomes it, then that's great. Yeah. You know, you need to, I mean, you're being paid to kind of do your best to add value to this vision and make it real. Um, but, but that, that you don't, you don't argue about it. If the guy says, mm -hmm. you know, he says, I don't like your Neil Peart drum fill in the middle of my blues song. Because, you know, the drummers all, you know, want to be in Rush or something. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, there's one band in the entire history of the world that Neil Peart would, was suited for and it was Rush. You know, so, I mean, if you're not in Rush or a Rush cover band, you know, Rush tribute band, we don't want to hear your Neil Peart drum solo. Just freaking play the song, you know, like that. Anyway. This is amazing. That's good. Oh, I mean, I have so much more anger that I could share it's with like you. It's grinding, it grinds your gears. It's true. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I've, I've literally true. almost come to blows several times in these situations because these guys can't get it through their head. Like I'm more respectful to them than they are to me, even in, you know, briefly, mm. like I'm more polite than they are. Um, and I'm like the solo artist. These guys don't last long. I mean, I don't like firing guys, but um, I mean, when you sit down with a guy a couple of times and you're like, look, you know, let's call him uh, you know, uh, Joey or something. Um, so I don't have to name these guys in person. It's like, hey, Joey, we've talked about our stage plot a couple of times. I don't want to talk about it anymore. When you show up with your keyboard, this is where you put your keyboard. You don't put it in front of the stage. Like, why am I even having to explain this? Yeah, man, sure. Okay, yeah, no problem, man. You know, yeah, you know, we're good. We're good, man. We're good. You know, and then it's just like the little weasel passive aggressive thing. You know, you're just gone. You just have to get rid of it recognize it right away and nip it in the bud it's gone yeah yeah uh, it must be hard too when you're hiring people for who aren't a regular member of your band and it's a it's like a, like a session player or something you know somebody you've never worked with before but you know i you know i, I sometimes you just meet guys there doesn't seem to be that correlation of like you know compatibility between what I'm trying to say is sometimes you're in a situation and everything clicks and everybody's cool and you're all kind of on the same page and that you're serving a song. Yeah. Now, you, you're, you know, and that's really what it is. Like, it, it's almost like the songs have their own kind of like nature or DNA or spirit or something. And they, 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 they kind of want to go in a particular direction in the, in the same way that 
you know, like an acorn wants to become an oak, you know, that kind of thing. So when you get guys that are really, you know, great musicians, um, you know, they instantly get that. I mean, you've listened to enough music, you kind of know, you can recognize very early on where this song is supposed to go and how it's supposed to sound. And so you're not just serving a, a human, you're kind of serving this original kind of like a fertilized ovum or something that already has a kind of purpose or direction that it wants to go. It sounds very mystical, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so when you're with good guys who, by the way, could be playing at a local pub, I mean, they're not famous necessarily. Um, then it's fun. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, you're almost communicating telepathically. You, you don't even need to explain anything. It's just these dweebs that, that think that music is technique mm. so that if they can play, you know, certain drum fills or, or, uh, certain sorts of scales on a guitar that that's being a musician and that's that's part of being a musician but that's not really what being a musician at least a good one is if you don't have the the kind of for lack of a better phrase the spiritual capacity to tune into a special piece of music that that almost seems like a kind of spell you know if it's if it's realized properly it will almost function as a kind of spell it will bring people together. It will create a really powerful, positive, shared experience that, will, that can really move people. And if you can't understand that, you suck as a musician. You're garbage and you should quit and go do something else. And it's the same, um, it's the same in like all sorts of other fields. It's not just music, right? You are there to do service to the song. The song yeah, is and what matters. Yeah, most. you're doing service to the song, and by doing service to the song, you're doing a, a sort of service to humanity and everyone else that is there experiencing that moment with you. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that, that lousy musicians don't get: is that um, you you are there almost in a <laughs> I was going to say a, a shamanic role. I mean, you are mm -hmm. there. You are there to kind of create. You're like an MC. You're like a host. You're you're taking responsibility or partial responsibility with the other musicians, right? You're, you're taking responsibility to create that experience for the other people. For all of you together, you're not there to, it's not an exhibition. I mean, if you're at a speed contest for who can play like the fastest Ingve Malmsteen um, solo, that's great. I mean, there's no problem with that if it's just a speed thing. But if you're there putting on a performance and trying to touch people, it's not about you showing off. And mm -hmm. by the way, by the way, sometimes you do show off a little bit um, or you, you will, I, I shouldn't say show off, you will reveal your skill um, because you do actually have a solo that the song calls for. And that solo is going to be an important part of the performance. And it is a moment of virtuosity, mm -hmm. but, but it's, it's not to stroke your own vanity. It's, to, it's to, to serve the whole experience, the song, you know, the people through the song. Um, that's what you're doing. It's the same with your drum fills. It's the same with your piano flourishes that you do. Um, it's not about you wanking in public musically. Yeah. It is. Um, and if you if you can't accept that, there, there, then a sort of pride that maybe comes from a sort of insecurity is is just inhibiting you. And again, you suck. It's probably holding you back. Yeah, inhibiting instead of yeah, we don't allowing you, you to you're lousy. <laughs> It doesn't allow you to get to your actual true potential, I, I suppose. No. And, you know, it's funny. 
it doesn't matter if you're playing in front of 45,000 people, which I've done a number of times, mm-hmm. or 12 people. It, there's no difference. You always do the same thing. Even if it's those eight people at a lonely pub on a deserted Tuesday night, mm-hmm. you still can have and should want to have and create that awesome, powerful experience for folks. Besides your father, who in this business have you met, worked with, um, looked up to that you got to meet and helped, helped you as, a, as an artist or you as a person grow? Well, you mean musicians? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I got an opportunity with my dad once to record with Neil Young. Mm. And that was a really cool experience. Um, it's not like Neil threw his arm around me and said, let me share, you know, I have eight lessons that I'd like to share with you. But just being around him and playing with him and seeing his whole approach and how he kind of creates his own unique kind of Neil magic was was a really cool experience. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I was, uh, Van uh, Edward Van Halen is another guy that I spent um, a bit of time with. Um, he was not at his best at the time. He was a, a big drinker, but he still made a lot of time for me. And I really appreciated that. I was a teenager at the time. He showed me a bunch of stuff. I went to his house and was able to see the studio and, um, that, that was really cool. I, I would, I guess I would also have to say, this is not kind of as spectacular, but in high school, I always would join the band. So I did marching band one year, I did jazz band, uh, concert band. I played different instruments and we were in smaller schools. So it didn't even, I didn't even find out until later that there was supposed to have been some sort of dividing line between musicians and athletes and uh, scholars and stuff because we were just all buddies and we played on the different teams and some of the athletes were in the band and it was was awesome it was was great but where I was going is um, so I always had different uh, music teachers in high school and I always felt that uh, I really there were really cool things that I learned from each guy and, and these are like nameless teachers that have probably retired since, right? But, but they loved music and they, you know, they, they really wanted to create awesome performances. And so we, if, whether we were doing a, a Vivaldi chorale or, uh, you know, Hungarian folk songs, I was a madrigal choir. I mean, like everything. But it's like, um, so that really, I feel, helped deepen me musically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I mean, I didn't know them personally, but I mean, every time you listen to a great record, you know, that's speaking to you in a new way. And that's, that's kind of showing you new things that can be done and new ways to touch people. The learning never ends. It's, it's not, you know, with music and musicianship. It always ha- you always have to have more things to uh, engage with and learn from. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the nice things about it. Yeah, do you, do you have- sing? I do. I've been, well, I sang in a rock band for 15 years. Just okay. A, just a local one in Edmonton here. All original stuff. Okay. 
tried to do a few cover shows, but then you just go way too far off the beaten path and it's right. hard to get back focused again. So, yeah. And, and being a great cover band is a really unique skill in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a huge amount of admiration for those guys. And three sets in a night, yeah. 45s, and how to keep it up. <laughs> I know. I mean, if you see a great cover band, I mean, you know, yeah. I sure could not do that. Yeah. Normally, well, I mean, we're not in a place anymore where a cover band could really travel across Canada and make a decent living like they could years ago. Mm. But, but I can't even imagine doing three sets a night, four or five nights a week. And doing it really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, like really good cover bands will, will really be faithful, of course, to the original song. But often they'll kind of put a new little bit of magic into it. And again, that's, that's a skill I don't really have all that. I can't seem to remember. I don't know. There's something in my head that sort of fights back against learning I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've done it before for fun. I play my way through songs, but um, I definitely would defer to these guys that, are, that do it every night. It's not something I'd want to do. I, or I'm more passionate about doing my own music, mm. you know, just telling my stories and yep. that's more of the thing. Um, just a couple more questions before sure. we wrap it up. Um, do you have a deep cut that you wish had been a single? Because I'd like to play a clip of it on the show here. You mean a song I've written? Yeah. Um, uh, most of those songs I've never even recorded, but I kind of want to get out there. But that's a whole other podcast about <laughs> life travails and stuff. Um, well, I did this record for a Canadian label, which went out of business like a week after my record came out. So nobody ever heard the record. Oh. And there's a, there's a, a kind of a waltz, I guess. Uh, it's been a long time since I heard it. But there's a, a love song on there called What You Won't Reveal that I thought was probably the best song on that record. And I would have liked people to hear that one. So I decided to do that. Is there, do you have a copy of it that you could, like send to me so I could play it. On the, I'd like to play it on the uh, show if I have your permission to do so. But yeah, you played on the show. Um, I actually don't know if I do. Uh, I just moved and I never even saw a CD of that album, and they're not making them anymore. So yeah, I'm not even sure where you would get a copy of that. Maybe it's lost forever. Oh no! I I think it's on YouTube. Okay, I can try to find it on there. Yeah, it's What You Won't Reveal. I've always heard still waters run deep That every smile can hide a frown And you're no exception I feel it from you It makes me love you more You know I love you more 
I would, I would, I did the vocal at five o'clock in the morning and I would probably do it over again. It's a little bit, uh, vibrato-y, overly so, but I, I think the song is pretty good. I'm going to try to find that. Okay. Um, if I can't find that one, do you have a second choice that, that I can find somewhere? Well, the only, that only leaves one other album. Um, Is that one you were talking about, the Staring Down the Sun album? Yeah, that one. That's the one that didn't get there? Sextant yeah. Records. Yes. Looking at Wikipedia. Short-lived, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. I can't really think of a good runner up, to be honest. I just I love, it, I love deep cuts. I love the stuff that not everyone's heard, you know? You know, I did a demo with my buddy Jeff Trott, who co-wrote a couple of big songs for Sheryl Crow. Well, it wasn't quite a demo. I mean, it turned out to just be, it sounded like a finished thing. And I like that one. That was a little bit of a spooky one. Um, I think that's on YouTube too. We wrote this. I went down to Los Angeles and I, and I called up Jeff and I said, do you want to get together to write songs? And he said, sure, come on over. I'm trying to write a song for the new Twilight movie. So there's a sequel coming out. I can't remember which sequel. And he said, I've got an in with the musical director and I've got a kind of an idea, but I don't really know what to do with it. And he only had like a little piece of melody. So we sat down and we wrote this song and I thought it turned out really well. Um, and again, I, somebody, I have no idea who heard a copy of this demo and then put together their own weird Twilight video on YouTube. So that's another one you could listen to. Okay. I want to find that. The YouTube. What, what would I do without YouTube? I know. Brings back all kinds of stuff to, you never knew was out there. Yeah. That one is called um, oh, one, one Starry Spirit. Okay. Got it's it. That creepy one. back to what we were talking about when you were studying in university do you think that politics would be in your future um i don't know yeah i mean i wouldn't rule it out i, I don't know if i'm corrupt enough yet but i'm working on it <laughs> i'm really i'm really working on it I've, yeah. um, uh, I've started lying more often and um you know trying to convince people to pay me bribes so I can just get used to the idea. No, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see what happens down the road. Yeah. And uh, do you have any causes that you support and you want people to know about some charities and such that. Wow. Caught me off guard there. You know, I should have, I should formally align myself with some charity, but I'm, I'm actually not formally allied with any of them right now. Um, just something that you yeah, that's something about. to think about. Something to think about. Um, most of my, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I have to think about that. That's a good question. Um, 
I guess the food, the food and drinks industry. How about that? Bring it yes. back home. <laughs> yes. I appreciate your support. Full circle. <laughs> Keep these pubs operating. Um, I don't know. I have to think about that. And your current projects musically right now, what's going on? What can people uh, look up and where can they find you? Well, I have a couple of pages on Facebook that people can find me on. Um, one is the pro page, which I, I mean, ought to be honest, I, I don't find all that exciting. And, and plus, I'm always kind of on guard there because it's kind of the out in the open pro page. So I can't really shoot my mouth off the way that I do on my personal Facebook page. <laughs> which I have a lot of fun with. Um, Twitter. What about your Twitter? Do you get a little more spicy on Twitter? Or? You know, I just, uh, not really, because I uh, I just, sorry, there's a guy mowing his lawn. Can you hear that through the mic? Or is it okay? No. Okay. Um, I can't really connect with Twitter. I mean, I have a Twitter account, um, but I just can't seem to compress my thoughts into the small space available there. I know, only so many characters. I gotta get it. Well, the other thing too is that there's like a level of mob insanity on Twitter that does not even exist on Facebook or probably Instagram, which I don't really spend a lot of time on. Mm. So that's that's a little bit daunting because you, you don't even have the space to, to destroy these idiots that come after you. Like you could say, sorry, go ahead. They have more anonymity on Twitter. Well, that's the, that's one thing, right? So, I mean, it, 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 you know, sometimes, like, if you put, if you kind of, hey, here's how I see the world, and you post a little thing on Facebook, or here's what I think's going on here, and somebody comes back at you, that's fine. But then you can actually have a discussion, you know. Mm. And um, if you're like me, you're not really hanging around with a whole lot of other people in real life um, all the time because you don't have a normal job. That's pretty fun. It's a fun pastime, um, but then you can, well, here's, here's, here's why I disagree. You know, three points, four, four points, five points. I mean, you can, you can get into it. Um, Twitter, you just can't do that. It's just all these like nerds, um, <laughs> you know, with anonymous accounts that, that almost seem to delight in deliberately mis, you know, misrepresenting what you just wrote. You know? Yeah, it's just, who, who needs it, right? It's a, yeah, unnecessary headache there. Yeah, I think so. So what other projects are going on right now? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I've just been working on a kind of father-son project with my dad. We are planning to do an album. And yes. we want to have hits. So we're putting together a, an all-star team, and uh, we'll see what we can do there. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, so far it's been really fun. Okay, well, it's been really great talking to you today. I th I'm very happy that you gave me this time to chat. It was great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so take care and stay safe. Okay, you too. All right, bye. All right, see ya. Bye. I loved that. I absolutely loved having that chat with Tal. Um, thanks for being on the show. It was a great episode, Tal Blockman, everybody. Check out his uh, albums. Oh, you can find it on Spotify. You can find it everywhere where you find good music. And for next week, we're putting together an episode right now about Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I had the opportunity to speak with two out of four members of the Funky Bunch. I believe originally there were three and then a fourth was added. Anyway, two members took time to talk to me. Hector Barros 
and Big Ace. Those guys will be on the show next week. Until then, make sure you're safe and take care of yourselves, guys. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work. It's a Conspiracy is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network and happily powered by ATB. We are a bi-weekly podcast that aims to discuss selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more without coloring the topic with our conversation until the very end of the episode. We also feature beer reviews, lame jokes, bad puns, far too many 80s movies references, geek culture, and general nerdery. Our Our real aim is for for fun, inclusive content that doesn't take itself too too seriously. You don't have to be blisteringly paranoid of mind control to enjoy a chin wag with your old pals, Greg, Charlie, Andrew, the Irish Madman, and our podcast puppies, Kylo and Ren. (laughs) It's a Conspiracy is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. ATB! (laughs) 